Okay, people. So on page 33 again, some possible historical context. Here's the, here's the way that people have talked about this issue over the past um, half century. Page 33, some possible historical context for Genesis 2 to 4. Uh, if it had been um, 30 or so years ago, uh, then with some confidence people would have said that the story about the Adam and Eve story uh, comes from what uh, Gerhard von Raad used to call the Solomonic Enlightenment. The idea of that is that when um, David had uh, brought about his great achievements uh, and the country uh, was in a state of, uh, of rest, then uh, Solomon inheriting that situation was in a position to encourage uh, the culture to look around and ask what it was about and where it came from, what it was for. And that was the context in which the first great accounts of Israel's uh, story were put into writing. A period of, uh, then of the Solomonic Enlightenment. In that context, then, uh, the man is portrayed as a king with his garden and his animals over which he exercises dominion. But what the story then does is refuse to confine royalty to kings and implicitly offers a critique of David in particular. The story derives from circles who stand over against the king to admonish, instruct and correct him or finally to impeach him. David knows how to rearrange the world for his own ends and brings death. Solomon was the man who sought to know everything. Kings and other mortals need to acknowledge that there are boundaries. So if you imagine the story being written and read in that context, uh, those are lessons that I have for you. Why does it go straight from one to three? Oh, then it goes to two. No, can you see that? Isn't that weird? Yeah, this, well, yeah. Mm. I think they're all in the wrong order. It's, I blame Microsoft Word. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's well, the first number three, then. David Kleins argues, raises the question, um, in what way was Eve a help to Adam? Um, and uh, his answer, plausibly it seems to me, uh, is that Eve is, was a, is a help to Adam by bearing children. That's the, that's the thing that Adam couldn't do. Now, when we read the story out of our cultural context, all we care about is being relational. Uh, and therefore, when we read about uh, Adam and Eve, we want them to be relational, because that's the kind of thing we want to find. Uh, Klein suggests, uh, and, and, uh, and so we, we then read in all sorts of, like we read about Adam being alone, and we think that that, that means he was lonely. That's not what it, that's what it's Klein's arguing, I think, possibly. It just means he's on his own. He's got, this, he's got to, he's got to um, look after this garden, and he's on his own with it. There's a serpent around the corner, but that's not going to do much good to him, is it? <laughs> so he needs not to be on, on his own in order to fulfill that task. Uh, so he needs actually to, um, uh, to have quite a number of people who help him, but he can't generate quite a number of people on his own. He hasn't got the right equipment. Um, 
So Eve will be a help to Adam by fulfilling the indispensable task of bearing the children that will, that will then enable the two of them together uh, to be able to um, do this work that God wants to have done in the garden. Uh, Kleins then suggests, with regard to dating, um, that this would fit with a situation when in the land of Canaan the problem was underpopulation and Israel needed women to bear children. Both men and women had to work hard to make things grow in the not ideal conditions of the mountain country where Israel lived. And you can compare that with what's said about the, the nature of that hard work uh, at the end of chapter 3. And that's where Kleins is building upon uh, this work by Carol Myers uh, called Discovering Eve. Uh, in which she talks about that being, she talks about the mutual relationship, the interdependence of man and woman, um, in, 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 in ways that are, um, that don't sit so well with us, um, because of, again, of cultural uh, factors that affect us. There was a great post that brings out this, now where is it? This does relate to the patriarchy questions, but I'll deal with it now. Um... The, the, a person's question in the post was, should we go off Genesis 1 with its concern for equality of men and women, or should we off, go off Genesis 2 and 3 where they are viewed differently, or should we go off both? And I think there's, there's more than one uh, question there. Um, maybe they weren't confused in this person's mind who put this, who did this post, but they um, reflect some confusion that there often is, I think, in our, in our culture. In Genesis 2 and 3, um, I will want to suggest the man and the woman are, as it were, just as equal. It's just as egalitarian as chapter 1 is. Um, but the difference is that there's no differentiation of, ro of roles stated in chapter 1. There is a differentiation of roles stated in chapter 2, uh, in, at least in that um, assumption that an important thing that the women can do that the men can't do is have babies. Now, uh, and the, the important thing that's about womanhood in this particular context is its capacity to have babies. Now, we don't like that, at least a lot of us don't in our culture. But we need to see the cultural reasons why we don't. Uh, that, that is, that, uh, that the um, marginalization of the home compared uh, with life, as it were, out in the public world uh, came about as a result of industrialization and urbanization. Um, and a devaluing then of what happens in the home, and a devaluing therefore, uh, and that, that, got, that got combined with a separating out of the realm of activity and that of man and woman, uh, and uh, a giving a value status, status to the work out in the world that the man did, and um, the assumption that it wasn't value status attached to the work in the home that the woman did. Uh, and we are now in reaction against that, and one of the ways in which we act against it is anything that suggests about differentiation of roles. Now, we need to see we have a cultural problem here. Genesis may have had cultural problems, but they weren't those cultural problems. Um, and in the context of life, um, in a traditional culture in general, uh, perhaps, but certainly the kind of one that Bill describes, Genesis 2, at least, Carol Myers, for instance, would suggest, is assuming that there are different roles for men and women. But that doesn't mean that the man's role um, is better than the woman's, more, more important than the woman's role. If anything, Genesis 2 emphasizes it's the woman's role that's indispensable. If there were no women, the women, and if there were no men, the women could get on with it. 
So no men, the women die out very quickly. Well, they need, the women do need one man. That's why you sacrifice male animals. You don't need them. Um, so we, we, need to, we need to keep separate the question in Genesis 2 of whether the fact that the men, man and the woman have different roles... We need to keep separate the fact that uh, the man and the woman have different roles from the question of whether them having different roles and the particular roles they have mean that the woman is inferior. Those are two separate uh, issues. Uh, and as I say, the um, Carol, Carol Meyer's uh, research into the implications of uh, life um, in Canaan um, brings out how indispensable is the position of woman as part of the family business, as it were, in, uh, in the way that life works. I think it's she who also says uh, that the way that the, the division of labor means the man goes out, out for the day onto the farm and does things for which you can be totally brainless, totally stupid. All you've got to do is dig for salt for the time. And does things that require a lot of intelligence, like weaving and things like that. So, uh, if you look at the at the Genesis two and three story against the background um, of how life is uh, in Canaan uh, in the period of the monarchy or before the monarchy, then Fine suggests you can see uh, Fine's Myers together suggest you can see some reasons why the story will be told that way. Um, number two, why the serpent? I love the thing in the um, in the tape about uh, the, the the parrot flying in through the window. Because it kind of demythologizes the serpent for us, stops taking the serpent quite as seriously. Um, but uh, but there are, but there are some reasons. Why should it be a serpent that is the means of um, of temptation? There are various sorts of answers. Um, here are one or two. The serpent reflects the temptation and the claims of Canaanite religion. The serpent is a symbol in Canaanite religion. A serpent, of, a, a symbol of fertility and a symbol of wisdom. Here, this serpent promises life and wisdom. Genesis puts it in its place by noting that Yahweh created it. Now, we tend to think, oh, the, the fact that Yahweh created this serpent is a problem. From this understanding, against that bit of background, it's a solution. Um, note the story in Numbers about the, um, the snakes um, that the Israelites when how Moses made a bronze serpent, bronze snake that you looked at, and that was the thing that God, the means by which God healed you. Uh, and the two kings references to the way in which that bronze serpent became uh, a an object of worship, and so they had to destroy it. Now it became an object of worship because it was the kind of thing that would be an object of worship in Canaanite religion. And uh, this suggestion is you can see that in the background um, of the Genesis three story, the temptations uh, of Canaanite religion. Then there's the second number three. Uh, the Cain and Abel story, as somebody uh, raised this question in their, in their posting, does it reflect the conflict between farmers and shepherds? And or does it reflect the question of the origin of the Kenites? The Kenites are a group <coughs> who appear later on in the Pentateuch. And as that von Rad quote puts it, the Kenites were a difficult... Uh, so it sounds... Uh, Kenites and Kenites is very... Uh, they're spelled differently in the English Bible, but it's the same word. Um, the Hebrew is the same. 
The Kenites were a difficult riddle to the Israelites. They too, like the Israelites, were worshippers of Yahweh, perhaps even before Israel was. In spite of this, the Kenites never really belonged to the covenant community chosen by Yahweh. Von Rad suggests the Canaanable story is giving you uh, an explanation of how that came about. Number four, which is really number five. Knowledge is power. So it's in the interests of people in power to deny knowledge to ordinary people. Now that's a negative reading um, of Genesis to a point. Saying uh, to deny them that not knowledge is to deny the power. Uh, another negative reading, uh, it's on along Masala, who's a South African theologian, sees the hostility to Cain in the story as providing justification in the period of David and Solomon for the disposition of freehold peasant farmers by the state and or by big landholders. Uh, African-American uh, Old Testament scholar Stephen Brett-Reed, uh, who is going to teach a course here next year, in, um, in, um oh, perhaps he's teaching this course in Houston. I'm sorry, he's teaching the course in our extension, our regional centre in Houston. Forget all that, it's no use to you unless you come from, unless you want to go to Houston. We'll have to get him here. He takes that argument of, of Masala's further. He argues that Genesis 3 and 4 reflects the way that the liberating gospel of Genesis 2 has been abandoned in the time of David's song. Patriarchy has triumphed, brotherhood has collapsed. Uh, and he takes, the way, takes up the way in which Christian tradition has turned Cain into a black man. And he seeks to invert that by portraying Cain as, in a sense, the victim in the story, even though doing wrong in the violating of key relationships. He is structurally locked into not doing well. Now, I think that all those, that range of interpretations, there's a very rich range um, of insights that people have found in Genesis 2 and 3 and 4. Um, and against the, against the hypothesis of some related, related sets of historical backgrounds. But they can't all be true. And there seems to be no way really of judging between them. So all these might be stimulating thoughts that the chapters cause you to have. But I, I can't have any conviction that any of those thoughts directly arise from the chapters themselves. Uh, and the idea that the chapters have a background in the period of the United Monarchy, say, in association with that, is an interesting idea, but not one for which there's really uh, more than circumstantial evidence. Um, and the problem then is that this range of circumstantial evidence is too wide for it actually to be committed in court. So, when you read people assuming that they know when Genesis 2 and 3 uh, were written, um, be a bit sceptical about it, because they may simply be um, reading into the text a possible view about when the story uh, was written, but not one that people would write. Uh, I'm not worried by that, partly because one of the significances we've always assumed about Genesis 2 and 3, I think, is that it's dealing with um, the kind of questions about being human that transcend particular periods. 
Genesis 2 and 3 uh, raise, and suggest answers to, a collection of questions about us and God, as I tried to uh, say last time. Uh, about what it means to be human, about what it means to be men and women, about what the nature of the relationship between us and God is, about what the nature of, is, of the relationship is between us and the land, and us and our work, and so on. And about the ambiguities of all those relationships. Um, and the story is instructive with regard to all those, whether it was written in the time of Moses, or in the time of David, or in the time of Josiah, or in the time after the exile, all of which are views that are held um, by competent scholars um, in 2009. It doesn't matter too much which is the right answer uh, if one assumes that uh, the, the, these chapters are dealing with those um, time transcendent kinds of questions. Anyone want to get at me about any of that? Okay, you've had your chance. Um, <laughs> page, uh, well, where are we? 36. Genesis and science. Or, how did, how did the world as we know it come into being? Page 36. Thank you. 35. Well, as long as we've all got the right page, the same page, that'll be all right. <laughs> at, at the top it says, Genesis and science, or how did the world as we know it come to be? Here are some different scientific accounts of the process whereby the world came to be. Uh, the view that the world was created in six days, not, not long ago. Six-day creation of a young earth, that the world came to be by God's create, creating it over a six-day period a few thousand years ago. <coughs> or, or then, here's a second view, creation, then catastrophe, then recreation. Or here's a third view, intelligent design. The world came into being over billions of years by a process involving God's direct steering and intervention. The evolutionary missing links are missing because species did not, did not develop directly from one another. And if you want to read about intelligent design, there's a long and short um, resource. Uh, here's a fourth theory, theistic evolution. This is what Nancy thinks, so it must be right. Uh, that the world came into being over billions of years by a process of evolution that in principle science can trace as a natural one, but, but behind which believers see God's activity. Uh, and there's a resource for um, that assumption. Fifthly, naturalistic evolution. The world came into being over billions of years by a process of evolution that had its own dynamic. You don't need God for it. On mainstream America, evolution is often interpreted as a creation story for atheists. That's why you have such a battle in your culture uh, about it. Those are views held, uh, all of them, by um, intelligent, scientifically-minded people, among whom I do not count myself. I'm not a scientifically-minded person. Um, what's the problem with regard to creation and genesis? A. The apparent clash between two sources of information that should both be reliable. The Bible and the world are both sources of knowledge about the world. The Bible itself assumes that we learn from both. There is natural revelation as well as special revelation. 
but the sources of information have seemed to clash in what they tell us about world origins, about the age of the world, and about the speed with which it came into being, and about the process, whether it was immanent or whether it involved intervention. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm God's part. That's the first problem about, about, uh, with regard to Genesis. A second problem, uh, or, a tooth, or, or, or a pair of problems related to that, there's the consequent danger of being anti-science, as if science were inherently anti-God, or I think the bigger problem of misfocusing our intention on Genesis, in, uh, concentrating on the scientific implications of Genesis more than on its message. Uh, now, you may have been bored by all the things we've done in Genesis today and on Monday, but I find them fantastically exciting um, in terms of what the Word of God has got to say to us. But most of the time in the church we miss all that stuff because we're preoccupied with this stupid question about Genesis and science. <laughs> See, the actual problem about us and Genesis is a clash between the interpretation of two sets of evidence. The interpretation of two sets of evidence. Both sets of information come from God. That is, the infinite and the world, and from the Bible, the both come from God. The problem is a clash between our scientific understanding of the data from the world and our Christian understanding of the data from the Bible and what we infer from both of those. Over the page, paragraph three, here are some approaches to the problem. One is to say, on the facts, science is right, Genesis is wrong, but it doesn't matter. It can still be right on the theology. That, for instance, is what Gerhard von Rath says um, in his commentary on Genesis. Another is to say, Genesis is right on the facts as well as on the theology, and science is wrong. That's what takes you into creationism. The theory of evolution is just a theory. It's not proven. It's important to note the distinction between microevolution, which is uncontroversial, and macroevolution, which is inferred from it. And it's important to note the question whether evolution is inherently anti-God. Radiometric dating, establishing the antiquity of the world, um, that maybe is, can be wrong. Or maybe convulsions that came about through the flood have misled people. Or maybe God inevitably created an old-looking world. That's the view that I like. If I was going to believe one of these views, that's the one I'd go for. Because it, it's, it presupposed, ask the question, did Adam have a navel? Um, now, and, and, and were there rings? When, when Adam looked at the trees in the garden, if he'd chopped one down, which would have been very wicked, but if he had, would there, would there have been rings around it? Um... It, was it inevitable that God, if, if Adam had a navel, then that was rather misleading. It gave him, it made it look as if he had a history that he didn't have. Um, and, uh, but so, so maybe, so God, God, it would have been, if God created the world 6,000 years ago, um, then it might have been inevitable that it, ha that it looked as if it had a history that went back millions of years. Maybe God only created the world five minutes ago. And what we think is our history is just the, what we think is our history. God inevitably created us. Maybe this is just a dream or a nightmare. Maybe creation hasn't happened yet. 
Um, C, uh, Genesis and science can be reconciled as a, a third sort of approach. For instance, uh, you can fit Genesis 1 and science with each other by saying that day, that a day can mean a long period, like quite a number of billion years. Um, uh, and, and the order in Genesis, if you say that, then the order uh, in which things were created in Genesis 1 is more or less right regard to evolution. You have to do a bit of kind of shifty footwork with regard to flying creatures, I think. But it's nearly, it's nearly right. And that often when people talk about theistic evolution, uh, that goes along with um, uh, a, a billions of days, billions of years, um, counting as one day theory about Genesis 1. Um, I snag about that um, is, though, that I... Uh, no, I haven't suggested to you, but I'm just about to do it. Um, that, what, that one of the points about Genesis 1 is to describe God doing a week's work and then having a day off. And that eventually is the pattern for humanity. Um, but, if, but if God didn't have do a week's work and then have a day off, then the logic of that disappears. If, God, if, there were, if, they were, if these days were billions of years, the point's about describing the six days. Or another approach to reconciling Genesis and science is to have the main part of Genesis 1 describing a recreation after a catastrophe when the original Earth became a formless void. That's what somebody uh, in, in, in a post did refer to as the gap theory. Um, that um, God created the world. Um, Genesis 1 verse 1 refers to the actual original creation of the world. Um, and Genesis 1 verse 2 should be translated, the earth became a formless void. Uh, and that's what the NIV margin has got. Um, and then you could say the rest of, that then the rest of Genesis 1 um, is the recreation of the world after that catastrophe, and you don't have to worry about it fitting in with evolution, because evolution is all inside Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, which can cover anything. Um, the snag about that is that nobody would ever nobody would ever have dreamt nobody would ever dream of translating Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 that the earth became formless and body unless you needed to do that for the sake of this theory it's quite grammatically possible but nobody would ever have done it there's nothing in the context to make you uh, translate it that way it's only out of that modern uh, need to, tra to translate it that way that you do it or you can reconcile Genesis and science by saying Genesis 1 isn't actually telling you uh, how the world was created at all. It's telling, it's Moses giving you his vision um, of uh, not the, the, the vision that God gave him of how the world was created. And the six days are the six days of a vision rather than six days uh, of creation. There's just no evidence of that. D. Uh, and, uh, another sort of approach to the problem then that is uh, that seems to me to be uh, the, the best one is to assume that Genesis, Genesis and science don't need to be reconciled and the reason they don't need to be reconciled is that Genesis is parabolic history or picture history it's not factual history what it's, do, what it's, do, what it's doing is telling you a creation story that uses symbols and stories that were available to the author in order to bring out the theological significance of what God was doing in creation. 
In contrast to that, science is about process, not meaning. The two of these belong in different spheres. And the uh, little book that I found most helpful in expanding this is that of a book by David Pascal, James's One Reconsidered. In the story of David and Bathsheba, there is a parable that Nathan tells. When, when Nathan comes to um, confront David about the Bathsheba affair, 2 Samuel 12, Nathan says to David, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had brought. He brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his meager fare and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Then there came a traveller to the rich man, and he was loath to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared that for the guest who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You're the man. Because what Nathan has done, and subconsciously you can tell that David knows this, is tell David the story of what he himself has done. And so, with, that, with some psychological mechanism whose name, whose name I've forgotten, it's kind of project, like projection. Any psychotherapist doesn't give me the right word. It's like, kind of like projection. That, that he hears this story, which subconsciously he knows is about him. And so he reacts against it because he knows that what he has done is wrong. But Nathan would never have got him to do that had he not done it by telling him the story. At least, perhaps. If he simply come straight and tell this is what he did and it was wrong, maybe Nathan would have ended up with his head cut off. Uh, but, but Nathan uh, gets around that. Now, the significance of what we're doing at the moment is this. The, books, the book, uh, 2 Samuel, has already told you the literal story of what David and uh, what happened in regard to David and Bathsheba and Uriah. We, we know the literal story. Nathan now tells the same story, but in the form of a picture, in the form of a parable. If we'd only got Nathan's parable, we wouldn't know exactly what it was, literally what it was that David had done. But we would know the kind of thing that David had done. We would know the theological and ethical significance of what David had done. Um, and I owe to Derek Kidner in his commentary on Genesis um, the, the insight that, or as he puts it, who is to say whether the opening chapters of Genesis are more like Nathan's parable or more like the actual main text of 2 Samuel. Um, and my assumption is that those opening chapters of Genesis are indeed more like Nathan's parable than they're like um, the literal story uh, in 2 Samuel. The significance of referring to Nathan's parable is that Nathan is talking, is talking parabolically about something that actually happened. Um, whereas uh, when we talk about Jesus' parables, we are um, talking about things that didn't need to happen. Uh, now, it is important for some aspects of Christian doctrine that what happened at the beginning of creation, when God created the world, and when humanity turned against God, um, and, and the relationship between God and humanity was disturbed, it's important that that's something that happened back, then, 
back then that was, was once for all historical kind of event. Uh, and thinking of it in terms of a historical parable like Nathan's helps you uh, to be able to see those opening chapters of Genesis as expressed symbolically um, without losing the, the, the ability to be able to say, but they're talking about things that really happen. If, that's, if, you can, if it's okay to look at it that way, uh, and the presence of lots of symbolism in these stories is part of the basis for doing that, then we don't have to worry about the way in, uh, about what was the, we don't have a vested interest in any particular account of how the world came into existence of the kind that is traced by, uh, by science. Um, what, what Genesis is making statements about is the theological significance of what that was, uh, not the um, nature of the, uh, the process that you would have observed if you'd been there. In that sense, Genesis science don't need to be reconciled. They belong in two different spheres. To, to come at that um, conviction another way, note how the Old Testament, in fact, offers you a number of portrayals of how the world came into existence. For instance, Isaiah 51 says, it was a bit like God having a fight with some opposing forces. Psalm 90 says, it was a bit like God having a baby. Psalm 104 says, it was a bit like God building a house. Genesis 1 says, it was a bit like God doing a week's work and having a day off. Genesis 2 says, it was a bit like God turning a chunk of desert into a garden. We assume um, that those accounts in Isaiah and, and the two Psalms um, are poetic, symbolic. And we assume Genesis 1 and 2 are literal historical. But why should we assume that? Genesis 1 and 2 can be uh, just as um, symbolic, uh, need to be no more literal, than those other pictures of creation that there are in the Old Testament. And all of them uh, are the way they are because they're images for describing something that people couldn't literally describe. Now, imagine, obviously, God could have revealed to Moses or somebody. Uh, a, an accurate, precise, detailed, historical, uh, scientific, scientific account of how the world came into existence. And it would have been totally useless to anybody, because nobody would have understood it. I mean, I've read, or I've tried to read um, Stephen Hawking, I don't understand it, and I've got a PhD. Uh, what, what chance would people, would 99%, 99.9% of the population world now, let alone in the past, have had an understanding and account of creation that God inspired if it was a scientific account. And what would have been the point? Because what we needed, and what God gave us in scripture, is an account of creation that tells us what it meant, not merely what it was. And so these stories use images for describing things that people couldn't, couldn't literally um, have described, or couldn't have literally described in a way that it's thus the gift of God that in inspiring scripture God gave us a picture account rather than um, a scientific account. Back to the different scientific accounts um, the different kind of possibilities um, to what, uh, the, the beginning of the um, uh, of page 36 
Of those five ways of, uh, those five scientific ways of the process whereby the world came to be, what I want to um, suggest is any of the first four are compatible with Christian faith um, and with the inspiration of scripture for that matter. Naturalistic evolution clearly isn't, but theistic evolution is. So the first four, any of the first four of those, you could believe would be a Christian. The first two of those, six-day creation of the young earth and creation, then catastrophe, then recreation, start from questionable assumptions about Genesis 1, about the genre of the story, the kind of story it is, uh, and or about the translation of the passage. Uh, they're not exactly incompatible with scriptural teaching, but they involve uh, questionable assumptions about the nature of Genesis 1. Either 3 or 4, intelligent design or theistic evolution, is compatible with Genesis 1. Um, as, as a biblical interpreter, uh, I, don't have any, I don't have an opinion about it. I don't need to have an opinion about that. Because uh, neither, uh, either of them uh, could fit in with Genesis. Who's concerned, though, is to say something. Um, I'll stop talking for a minute and you can talk with the person next to you or the two people immediately near you about what you think of all that what you thought about it before what you think about it now things you find difficult about it let's do that for two or three minutes okay